episode of Under the Pool. I'm here with Tim today, and we're going to talk about team-based teaching. Both of us do this, and so we thought we would talk about our experiences, how we implement it in our classes. So Tim teaches a lab class, and I teach a lecture class, and so those are very different environments, and we thought we would talk about all things teams. So let's start asking Tim, how do you use team-based teaching in your lab courses? Wow, what a great question. The biggest things that I use it for are first just making the lab work logistically. It's a 15 to 20 person lab section. There's no way to have 20 SEMs in the lab. I don't care if you're the University of Michigan or not, but nobody has that much money. So we need the students to be working in teams for equipment purposes, for logistical purposes. But really beyond that, it's a very important teaching opportunity because one of the things that I want students to learn in this course is project management, distributing workloads, planning out time budgets, as well as equipment budgets and cost budgets, thinking about who's going to do this, when will they do it, how will we fit all these pieces together, and being really intentional about how they coordinate with each other. It's very different from, okay, you're on a team, make sure the work gets done, and I'll see you in a month. Great. So how do you actually make your teams? Yeah, I have a tool that is called Tandem. It was built here at the University of Michigan, and uh, it is available to external people. Anyone can create a Tandem account and use it. Tandem is a tool that starts by giving the students a survey, and so I ask them questions about uh, demographics, prior classes, their schedules, where they live. So we have uh, three different campuses here at Michigan, and students will live on central campus or north campus or south campus. And that turns out to be a big factor because if half of your team lives on central, one person lives up north, one person lives on south, uh, that turns out to be a really big barrier for teamwork. So anyway, I ask students these questions about the various uh, factors that they have going on. And then Tandem has a uh, matchmaking algorithm that I can put coefficients on each of these factors, tell it which ones I want to weight more strongly, which ones are less important, and then it will try to do a global optimization of building teams that are balanced across these multiple factors. That's great. And um, so you make your teams. Do you keep the same teams for the entire term? Most of the time, yes. There is one special project that I do at the end of the year where students submit project proposals and those project proposals turn into the project topics for the final project. And so then those teams are built by the students based on what they want to work on. But other than that, I do have them working on the same teams throughout the semester. Part of it is building relationships. Part of it is also managing conflict. That's an aspect of the course that's very important to learn as well is you will not always get along with all of the people that you work with. And being able to handle that in a mature and professional and responsible manner is a critical skill that our graduates should have. Awesome. How do you actually monitor the teams to make sure they're performing at a high level and um, resolving conflicts and all those things you just mentioned? How do you actually do that? There are a few different team monitoring mechanisms in the course one aspect is that I do have a GSI, a graduate student instructor, for each lab section, as well as myself, and then also the lab staff are present. So among all of us, we are doing the 
simple but hard things of reading the room, listening to conversations, keeping an eye and a you know a feel for the pulse of the class in real time as students are working through their lab work in teams. This is another aspect of how teams work in labs that I think is going to be very different from what you have to say about the classroom environment because in the labs they're doing these multi component projects. Students are working on data collection on different tools, someone's doing analysis, someone's doing simulations. People are performing literature reviews and having to assemble all the pieces of this puzzle. So one aspect of team monitoring is doing those individual check-ins with each student and saying, "Hey, what part of your project are you working on? How's it going? What are your plans to coordinate with your teammates after class?" And having those in- individual conversations is quite valuable, but it is of course prone to bias as are all of our human interactions and it's also uh, something that can be really difficult to track accurately from week to week. Maybe there's a problem right now and we deal with it right now, but how was this team doing a month ago and how does that compare to the current situation? That's really difficult to uh, to track accurately over time. So this is where the peer review tools come into play in the the systems that we're using. So before we talk about the peer review, I'm curious... Um, you know, these students are doing things for the first time in these labs. First time they use a scanning electron microscope. The first time they're using a load frame system. Uh, the first time they're, you know, doing software, um, you know, using software to design alloys like we talked about previously. Right. Um, so not all students come in with the same background. Yes. I presume that, you know, one of the advantages, one of the supposed advantages of team-based learning is that um, other team members can help those team members who might not have the background in one area because those people will help them in another area. And you get a real equitable um, situation where team members help each other learn. And so there's a lot of learning that can go on. Uh, do you observe that? How do you um, do you promote that, and how do you um, how do you try to take advantage of the team to help them learn? Yeah, that's a great question. Sometimes there are these spontaneous interactions between the students where they'll be working with their teammates and someone is trying to perform a data analysis task, for example, and they say, "Huh, I don't know how to do this." And someone else on the team does know how to do this and will actually step up and say, oh, I can teach you that. That is one of the advantages of this multi-factored team building structure is that I can intentionally put on a team one student who's taken programming classes before and one student who's taken a stats class before and try to assemble these teams that have Uh, more diverse skill sets in terms of their academic preparation. So sometimes that works. But there is a uh, potential downfall is there as well. And the issue that can happen is that students become the specialist and just do one thing all semester. And while that can be very productive in a workplace, it's very counterintuitive to having a broad, well-rounded education. So this is something where it is definitely a matter of instructor intervention and doing that monitoring and saying, 
I feel like you've been working on the same thing for the last three weeks. I think it would be better if, and as long as I'm transparent and honest with the students about, hey, I want to make sure that people in this class are learning more than one thing and not just practicing the skills they're already good at and really just being very forthright about that. Yeah, there's resistance. Students are already good at the thing and they want to do the thing that they're good at. But at the end of the day, I also don't give them the choice. It's, look, I'm the boss. You need to work on something else. You need to give other people the opportunity to develop the skills that you already have. And you owe it to yourself to broaden your skill set as well so that you are a more successful graduate at the end of the day. So those conversations are hard and some students don't like it, but it's just part of the job. It's something that's important to do. So in the last few years, you've started to work with our technical communications department. That's right. And actually have um, embedded a tech comm instructor into the lab to help you with um, uh, the writing assignments and uh, poster presentations, oral presentations. Um, I remember when I used to teach the lab many, many years ago, one of the problems I ran into was what you just talked about. Um, you go to a team and say, well, what did you do? And they said, oh, I wrote all the reports because I'm really good at writing. That's right. And I said, well, then did you ever do data analysis? Oh, no, I never do that because someone else is always good at data analysis. Mm -hmm. And it was always difficult to fix that. And um, But now you have a tech comm instructor. I presume they have a lot of <clears throat> individual writing assignments to try to make sure everybody can communicate well. How do they do that? The individual assignments are something that I've increased in the course in the last few years and reduced some of the burden on the team-based side of things. One aspect of it is exactly what you've brought up. There's also another aspect before I get back to the uh, over-specialization problem, which is as much as we hate grades and wish they didn't exist. They do. And students do want to feel like they have control over their own grade. And when everything is the team, the team, the team, students get understandably frustrated that their own individual work doesn't really determine their own course grade. So by bringing in more individual assignments that are very communication-based, it's been a two birds with one stone sort of solution where we're giving the students ways to demonstrate their own expertise and earn points as much as I hate it. Uh, but it also is a really good way for us, the instructors, to enforce some of that broadening of your skill set and also as a good way to assess what the individual students are and are not learning in the labs. I think it's completely fine if different students end up learning different things from the course, but there is some shared core foundation that I really do want everyone to get. And so that's what's built into these communication assignments. It could be anything as simple as give a two-slide presentation on this aspect of the course and essentially convince me that you understand part of it, which is very easy to say and quite hard to do, or it could be something more involved. Something that uh, is a good example this semester is the um, the students were having them do more, more work with writing for non-technical audiences. 
This is the great challenge we know as teachers is, can you explain it to your grandmother, right? Can you explain it to your nephew? Can you explain it to a random person on the street? If you can accomplish that, you actually know what you're doing. So working in that venue with the students and say, explain this to somebody who doesn't already get it. That's been very revealing and also powerful for them. When they accomplish it, they feel good. Like, maybe I really do understand this. So that's how it's going so far. It's not perfect, but we're getting there. That's great. And so now for the final thing, how do you do peer review? Because uh, as you know, students are very interested in everything being yes. fair. And um, not everybody on a team is going to be a good performer. There's always mm-hmm. going to be the slacker who is just, you know, um, glomming off the other students and not really doing any work. They don't deserve to earn the same grade. So how do you deal with that? (laughs) I wish it doesn't happen, and then it happens anyway. And so, you know, the first thing that I do, I just sneak this in one day in lab casually offhand, and then the students say, wait, what just happened? Is I remind them, you know, half of you are below average. They really don't like that. (laughs) But mathematically, it's an objective statistical fact. Half of you are below average. That doesn't mean all of you aren't great, but there's always going to be a distribution. There's always going to be someone who does more work, someone who does less work. And so the first step in handling this is establishing with the students that this is an acceptable and normal thing that happens. There's going to be someone who does more. There's someone who takes more of a leader role, but it's not necessarily a reflection of you as an individual person, like, oh, you're the slacker, that's your destiny forever. There's a lot of reasons why you might not be able to contribute on any given week. Maybe there's a problem in your family. Maybe you're having health issues. You know, Maybe you um, have other extracurricular commitments, like you're on a competition team or you're going to a conference and you miss a week of class for a conference. So that's the first step is establishing that there are going to be fluctuations. Some weeks you'll do more than others. Some weeks you'll do less than others. But there is, at the end of the day, an important equity consideration, which is exactly what you brought up, Steve. If there's a student who's consistently doing more and there's a student who's consistently doing less, then that does need to be reflected in the course grade because fairness is actually a value that we should care about. So handling that. In uh, in tandem, the way the course is set up on the data side of things is that every week students do what is called a team check. And it asks um, about seven to 10 questions, very short questions. The whole team check takes five minutes to do. And it asks things like, how is your team doing on? And then there are a few different dimensions. Equal distribution of work is one of them. Also simple factors like scheduling. Are you able to have meetings together? Uh, asking questions like technical expertise. Do you feel like you individually understand enough to contribute to the team's performance? And so it's this short list of questions along those lines, and I get all of the data. So then the GSI and I together go through that and look for patterns and look for outliers. It's, It's a statistics problem. Even with small n, it's still a statistics problem. And when we're grading large assignments we look at those numbers. And it's this is the other thing that I really emphasize to the students is this is not just a deficit model. If everyone does a good job, but one person is a star, I can just give that one person a bonus. 
this is not necessarily about penalizing people. It's about rewarding those who do more, not just about punishing those who do less. And so that combined with these other factors means the end of the day, yeah, sometimes I do actually give a student a grade penalty because if they come out and say, I know I didn't do enough on this project, and their teammates also say, yeah, this person didn't do enough on this project, then the grade will reflect that. That's just the way things are handled in professional life. But then also, if everyone gets upvotes and the team agrees, this person was the star and they deserve it, then they do get a bonus. And it's usually not needed, but I feel like there's a certain level of balance there in that this is not about penalizing, it's about individual adjustments. Yeah, well, you know what? We've <laughs> heard enough from me for one day. I think it's time to put Steve in the hot seat. So you've got a, I say a lecture class with lecture in big quotation marks. I suppose the first thing to ask is how have you incorporated teams into lecture? It's a very different environment from lab. So how do you do that? So before I answer, let me explain that um, I'm teaching the intro to materials course that our department offers. Uh, we have multiple sections of this. We do not have common exams, but we do have multiple sections. Uh, we push about 600, 800 students through this every single year. Wow. Okay. Uh, maybe even more. And um, so my class has varied in size from uh, 45, 48 students all the way up to last term where I had 140 students in the class. And uh, the way I incorporate teams into my lecture is kind of radical. I eliminated lecture. So all I have are teams. And in fact, my class looks a lot like your class in a lab because they always sit with their team and do work with their team. <clears throat> the reason I went this way is because I don't really feel lecture is all that valuable. It's like drinking from a fire hose. At least lecture as the first introduction of the material. That's asking a lot of somebody. It's asking a lot of even faculty if they were to go in to listen to a lecture with concepts that they had never heard before ever in their lives, and some of which uh, are really deep concepts and require a lot of thought before you understand it. Um, it's kind of like trying to read, you know, a advanced textbook in one sitting. You know, usually you need to read the book a few times. You need to take a lot of notes. You need to go back and forth and back and forth to really understand it or a paper. And yet we somehow believe that we can take, you know, 18-year-olds, throw them in a large classroom and just talk to them for 50 minutes and expect them to really walk away understanding everything. The truth is, um, you know, the best optimal case is that you don't put them to sleep because you're going to put a lot of them to sleep. So to fix that, I've been trying team-based learning. And um, <clears throat> what I do is I start by creating teams. I try to create an environment where the teams can operate quite independently. So the goal is to take a very large class and break it up into small, intimate, five, six-people classes. I'd love to have teams that were teams of four, but that's very difficult because the numbers just don't work out. So I often have to have teams as high as six. But if I could, 
I would have teams of three or four. I think that's optimal. But it's more important to have a team than to not have a team. And so you have to live with your constraints. So I like to arrange my teams around the periphery of the room that I'm in so that I end up being sort of a theater in the round. What that does is it gets rid of the front of the room. It gets rid of the back of the room. I have unobstructed eye contact with every single person in the room as I turn around. And so that makes that allows me to monitor my teams in a way that I normally wouldn't be able to do in a large lecture. The other things that I do in my environment, I make sure that all of my teams uh, sit at tables uh, where they have a whiteboard next to the table. That can be a movable whiteboard or a whiteboard on the wall. It doesn't matter because I demand that my teams use the whiteboard to work on the activities during class so that I can monitor and I can see how they're doing. Um, so let's start at the beginning, though, and let me talk about how I make my teams. Yeah, so how does that team formation in a 140-person class work? That must be quite different than the 40 that I'm working with. Yes, but I'd argue that 40 is almost as challenging because um, unless you have a class size of less than 10, it's pretty hard to do that manually, especially if you want to put constraints on the teaming process. You could, of course, just do it randomly, but that's not a real-world situation. In the real world, most of these folks are going to go work at a company. Even those that go to graduate school, they're going to end up in a company. And I can guarantee you that managers in a company don't assign teams randomly to a project. They view people as human resources. Mm -hmm. They understand the strengths and weaknesses of all of their players, and they try to put the best team together to solve a problem because the goal isn't to make the player happy. The goal is to make money. And to make money, you have to be successful. You have to be creative and innovative and all these things so that you can best your competition. So you can't always just use your A players because you usually have lots of projects. So as a manager, you're required, you know, you need to optimize the team. And so a lot of thought, a lot of effort is going to go into <clears throat> creating these teams. So I want to do the same thing. But I don't have to have my teams make a product. What I care about is that the teams learn the material I'm trying to teach them. So how do I optimize learning? And the first thing that I want to do is take advantage of the diversity in my classroom. It's well known that diverse teams lead to stronger teams that can help each other learn because it's so valuable to interact with people who are different than you. Absolutely. Because everybody comes with a different, um, a, a different outlook, a different bias, a different um, perspective, and that's really valuable. The other reason I want to take advantage of the diversity in the room is that we have a responsibility to teach our students how to work with diverse team members, much like what you said. You're not going to always get along. There's going to be conflict. That's normal. So best we learn this right from the beginning in class. So I have, besides, you know, race and gender, 
I have a lot of other incredible diversity in my class because it's a <clears throat> sophomore-level class that, sadly, a lot of people wait until their seniors to take. But I think that's good because it means that I have you know, first-year students, second-year, third-year, and fourth-year students in my class. And they're from all different majors, is that right? That's another kind of diversity. Mm. So I have chemical engineers, aerospace engineers, industrial and operation engineers. I have bio, um, bio, um, bioengineering majors. Uh, I even have um, sometimes majors from LSA who want to just learn material science, and of course, a few material science students. So I have not only year, I have discipline, I have race and gender, and I also do one other thing. I do a little personality test. I use a modification of the six hats um, methodology that IBM developed. Um, I turn it into the four hats version of that that the Air Force Academy developed. And I reduce that to a real minimal set of uh, four or five questions. And I say, which statement matches you the best? And the statements are like, I'm an out-of-the-box creative thinker, or I'm a very algorithmic, very practical person, or um, I'm a um, contrarian. I always try to find, I always disagree with everybody and think that adds a lot to a team, things like that. And uh, I, you know, the students, unfortunately, all think that they are all of those things, and they probably are. So I say, you can only choose one, just choose the one you think is the best. And so I have that additional kind of diversity. So, uh, and so I, I use a tool called CATME, C-A-T-M-E dot O-R-G. This was a project, one of the first team-based uh, projects that uh, Purdue did, and because uh, they have a very strong engineering education program, right? And uh, they developed this as an NSF project, and it's a really good tool. The interface is horrible. They started charging money for it, and if they're out there listening to this, give us some value for your money, dude, because. Your your tool is awesome, but it is really hard to use because the you know in, the graphical interface is is awful. So please fix that. Yeah. To be completely honest, that's the reason I switched to Tandem was even though the functionality wasn't quite as robust, especially from a research and data point of view, the interface was nice to use. And that made a difference. Oh, it absolutely makes it. I make mistakes because of the interface. And it has ruined parts of my class because I unintentionally chose a question from a different class in my team building thing. So Back to what we're doing. Sure. Catme does two things. Pat Catme does a team building tool and it does a peer review tool. So the team building tool is obviously what I use to build my teams. And you can create a survey to send out to all the students so they self-report what their race or gender is. They can choose not to say. And I have questions, you know, for gender, you can say, you know, prefer not to answer or <clears throat> They can type in any kind of um, self-identity they want. Perfect. Um, same with race. Um, so they're not required, but they have to at least answer one question on the survey. And that one question, you know, might be the personality question or one of the others. I ask them, are you first year, second year, <clears throat> third year, or four year plus? And I ask them, what's your major? 
And uh, one of the choices is undeclared because we do have a lot of undeclared majors. And then CATME allows uh, me to either distribute or, um, or load a team with whatever parameter I want, kind of like you're waiting. Mm-hmm. So for things like um, you know gender, I don't want to completely – I'd like to completely mix, but there are some mathematical realities like I may only have three African-American students in my entire class of 40 students. On the other hand, I don't want to strand an underrepresented minority or a woman with a bunch of guys. And uh, although they probably wouldn't mind it, I try not to strand a guy with a bunch of women, Mm -hmm. Um, as sexist as that sounds, but it's – Usually the other way around, that's a bigger problem. But I try not to strand anybody. So there's got to be at least one other woman on the team, um, at least two URMs on the team, uh, et cetera. And so by adjusting the sliders, I mix the year. I don't worry about stranding that. I mix the disciplines. And it's incredible. You know, it's funny. I learned about this from a student. One year, a student came up to me and said, wow, it's so cool working on a team. I've never gotten to work with somebody in a different discipline. I'm a chemical engineer, and I'm working with a, a, a few people who are aero engineers, and they approach problems completely differently than we approach problems in chemical engineering, and it's amazing. And I'm like, duh, I can't believe I never thought of that. And that's when I started mixing all of the disciplines. So mixing disciplines, mixing years, mixing different personalities, and mixing race and gender gives me very diverse teams. Now, Katni has one other really cool superpower. If I want to make new teams, which I do, I'd make three teams during the course of my my class. And Katni at least allows me one time to make a new set of teams based on the original data where Every team member is now with a new – I don't have any overlap of team members. So any person on a team, when they get their new team, they're sitting with – if it's a team of six, they're sitting with five completely new people that they've never met. And I think there's a lot of value to doing that because it's important to learn how to quickly come up to speed with a new team. Mm-hmm. So we do that. So anyway, that's how we make teams, and it works out really, really well. Yeah, I love that idea of using personality measures as one of the factors that you take into account. Um, I'm thinking about how I might fold that into my own class. I'm also jealous in a way that I have almost entirely MSE students. 95% of my students are in MSE. And so from that one way of looking at it, they kind of all think the same or at least think the same way. And I'm part of the problem, I realize, because I'm training them to think like MSE students are supposed to think. And uh, yeah, it, it would be interesting to maybe even ask them like, so do you like chemistry or physics better? And maybe to try to use that as one way to to mix things up a little bit. But anyway, you've got your teams in your course and then they're in action. You're doing some team-based activity in class. How are you doing the monitoring? How are you seeing how they're, how the teams are functioning in real time? That's a great question. That also took me a while to figure out. And um, with a small class, with a GSI and myself, we were enough to walk around and make sure the teams were all 
uh, working well using the methods you described in your class. But when you get larger, when you get to like 70 students, 75 students, um, now you're talking about 12 teams, you know, something like that. That's a lot of teams. That's hard for one instructor to deal with. So what I started doing was I hired instructional aides. That's something that our university allows us to do. Instructional aides are usually undergrads who've taken the course before or, you know, juniors and seniors in material science who know the material. They're also relatively inexpensive. We pay our instructional aides $18 an hour, and their duty is to come to all of our classes. We have about four hours of class a week. Um, I also pay them an hour for prep work to make sure they uh, refresh themselves with the material, even though they all had the course. And then I also pay them for a half an hour meeting that we have once a week. And at first, I use them to, you know, be there to give hints, to help students, to point out where they're making a mistake uh, by, you know, working with them. But after a year or so, I realized there was something far more valuable that they could do. And I would never let them tell the, tell the students just the answer. They always had to be the guide on the side. That's right. And uh, I always had them do – so I had one IA for every two teams because it's not that hard. They could even do up to three teams. But two is what we usually did. And that's a good distribution. And then the GSI and myself would float. And if one of the IAs was ill or had something they couldn't come to class, we have enough capacity to fill in. If I need to, I can even have a few IAs do three tables. But then I started realizing the dynamics of the teams were a little troubling to me. There were always people who just sat there. And never interacted, never said a word. And there were other teams where one person would completely dominate the team. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, my teams aren't working. I have a problem because people are introverts or extroverts. And the more I read about team-based learning, the more I found out that the teams that are the most successful are the ones where everybody gets an equal chance to speak. And the reasoning behind that is that if everyone speaks, the other people on the team will recognize that each person has something special to offer to the team. And if someone is silent, they will never find out and they will never earn the respect of the other team members. It's a big problem. Mm, And a huge missed opportunity. A huge missed opportunity. So what I started to do was, you know, these IAs are pretty much the same age as all the students in the class. So I figured they'd have much better luck at doing what I would ask them to do than I would have. So I first start by explaining to all the teams what's going to happen. I'm going to say you have your instructional aide. The instructional aide is going to observe how you're all behaving on your teams. And if you're being a wallflower, and an introvert, they're going to come over and pull you aside and say, let's see what we can do to get you to be more engaged in your team. You need to talk. So I'm going to come and watch. And if you're not saying anything, I'm going to ask you, hey, Henry, will you please 
let us know what you're thinking. So it won't come as a surprise to you. You know this is coming, and you can even practice. And if you have any fears, let's talk about them, and let's find a way to have you overcome whatever it is that's preventing you from speaking. Now, this won't work unless you also pull aside the extroverts and explain to them how important the skill of listening is. (laughs) Yes, it is. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, we'll talk about peer review in a while, but I had one student who was so angry. After the peer review came out, he got hammered by his team. And he came up to me, this is so unfair. There is no way that I should have gotten such a low grade. I did everything. It was The project was my idea. I did all the work. I built the thing. I made the presentation. And they said I wasn't a good team member. And I would look at them and say, well, yeah, and you know what? I see evidence for what they were saying. You didn't let them help. How do you think that feels? You just took control and you robbed them of the opportunity to learn and create and do things on their own. And that's a big problem. So I'm sorry, but um, your grade's going to be reduced because you need to learn how to listen and not dominate. So that was a hard lesson for that person. So anyway, um, it has worked so well. What I tell the IAs is that they go, they have to listen to their students, um, intervene by pulling them aside, do it privately, and then getting them to talk. And I tell them if you have, you know, in, in fact, it turned out instead of talking about the material, which they all knew, at our meetings every week, all we talk about is who are you having trouble with? And we give them strategies with the specific people in mind for getting them more engaged or tamping down the extroverts. And I tell them, if you still have trouble, grab me and I'll get involved. And in, um, I think I've done this for six years now, I've only gotten involved once. And it wasn't even in my MSc class. It was in another class I'm using this for where we had students from all over the university and the one student absolutely refused to talk. Hmm. But, you know, there are some things we just can't help. Sure. But that was it. Every other time these students, and they work so well, I've been appealing to the university to change what the meaning of IA is because I think they're inclusion ambassadors. That's fantastic. Because that's what they do. So we have a very robust monitoring system that really drives inclusion, and that's the first step to generating mutual respect of the teams. And once that happens, then the equity problem goes away because they like each other and they help each other. And if somebody doesn't know something about, you know, the math, others will help them. And the funniest thing, um, you know, there's not a lot of math in intro to materials. But we do use vectors. We do have to use different differentiation to find maxima and minima. And, you know, occasionally we have to do, you know, vector addition. Like, who Ooh. would think? And when we did an integration problem, it turned out that some of the seniors who were in a discipline I won't mention uh, – who don't use a lot of that math, they didn't remember how to take a derivative or how to do an integral. And the freshmen 
were Helped on them. top of it. They I'm were on sure. top of it, and they retaught these students how to do it, and it was just so beautiful to see. That's great. It was awesome. What so a wonderful. wonderful experience to have as a freshman to have that experience of I'm new here and I already have something to offer. I'm not yes. just here to receive. I'm here to give. That's wonderful. That's right. I am curious before we talk about peer review, uh, have you heard from your IAs about what they're getting out of this experience is what, what gains are they having in, you know, their professional values or their self-worth? Like that must be really powerful for them as well. I think it is. I haven't done any formal studies, but I have a lot of anecdotal, um, evidence, um, First of all, it's probably the first time in their lives they ever got paid for what they paid the university to learn, right? So they're actually using their material science background um, and getting paid for it. So that's kind of nice. A lot of them are a little fearful, but most of them say that uh, they find it uh, enormously satisfying to help these students. Things they thought were hard before aren't so hard now that they've taken thermo and kinetics in the Uh lab class. And so they actually realize they know a lot more than they probably ever did. The other thing that I've discovered is that um, it's not always best to get the straight A students. Sometimes C students are the best IAs because they actually remember the pain they went through and somehow they've overcome it and they're in fact, they're really valuable. Mm. And I think this really gives them a lot of self-efficacy because uh, they realize that they're a lot smarter than their grades might say. And of course, we know that because grades don't really mean that much. Uh, and, um, you know, so I, I no longer require that someone get a B plus or better in the course. I'll gladly take a C student who I get a recommendation from someone like yourself who saw them operate in the lab. I care about passion. I want students who love material science or love engineering to be the ones who are the mentors for this. That's right. If you have the motivation and you have the stick with itness, that's what matters the most. Right. Well, in your class, back to the, the students, I guess, for a minute, how does peer review work? Are they turning in big end-of-project deliverables as as a team? Or what are they producing as a team? And how does peer review tie into both the grading and also the equity considerations? So they do many different things as a team. As I mentioned, I have three different teamings. Um, each teaming covers about four modules. I break up everything into modules. So I've got about, um, you know, 12 to 14 modules. And um, for each teaming, they do a variety of different tasks in class. Because remember, I'm not lecturing as the first introduction to the material. The first introduction to the material is they read the textbook using a tool called Perusal, which we'll talk about another time, Mm -hmm. uh, where they annotate the text and have an asynchronous discussion with their classmates about the text, and I give them lots of prompts. So they come into class already knowing a lot, but not knowing nearly as much. So what I do in class is I do a variety of things. I first do lots of drilling. So I give them problems. I give them 
questions to think about. I do demonstrations and ask them to predict what's going to happen before I do the demonstration and to explain why it happened after we do it. Um, we do homework activities, so I don't grade homework for um, accuracy. I just care that they use homework as a chance to practice the outcomes I want them to learn for the course. And all of the things we do in class um, are team-based activities. I'll do a lot of think-pair-share or peer-review kinds of things uh, where, you know, first they try it as an individual, and then I open it up to the team and they can talk about it. Uh, every station has a, um, a TV screen that they can plug their own computers in or I can push, um, you know, uh, dense information that they can actually read instead of looking at a screen. And um, so there's a lot of interactive uh, feedback loops that I try to use during class to teach them the material. Now, they should have – they've had to have prepared by doing the homework and by doing the um, the reading, and then I give them chances to dig a little bit deeper into what's going on, and we do all of that. But then at the end of each teaming sequence, we have a project, and they also have to work on the project as a team, and I'll often give them time in class to work on their project. And then at the end of each project, which is the end of that team's activity for a third of the class – uh, we do a peer review. And the peer review encompasses all of those things we've done. We also do a um, weekly test type thing. It's a readiness assurance activity where there's an individual component, then a team component. And so they do a lot of different things, all focused on giving them reps for doing what I know they need to learn for the course. And then they do this peer review. Now, the peer review with CATME is a little onerous. Um, CATME will not allow you to change the questions. You can only add more, <laughs> and it's already a lot. And some of them, you know, I don't know if they're good questions or bad. They claim it's all backed by research. But that's what Purdue's engineering education program is all about. And so, you know, I trust them to a point. They give me a numerical value for each student of their performance based on the students' um, impressions of themselves as well as the students' impressions of each person. But the thing I really like about CATME is there's an area where students can give feedback, written feedback to themselves and each other individual. And so when I see a team has voted somebody down, uh, you get a number between you know zero and two. One is perfect, right? Um, rarely do you see someone get a score above a, a 1.1 or a 1.2. Um, but often you'll see a student get like 0.6 or 0.2 because everyone hated them. And when I look at those bad scores, I immediately go right to the written evaluations And often I'll see they think the teammates are great and they don't even complain about them in the written feedback, but numerically they gave them a bad score. So in those cases, I ignore the numerical score and don't take off any points because if the team can't elucidate what the problem is, then I don't think it's a problem. That's Mm. their problem. It could easily just be bias coming in and not 
an actual underlying difficulty. Now, unlike you, I don't give anybody extra points for being a great team member. And I tell them the story of, uh, I remember when Samsung had a problem with their telephones. They started bursting into fire. And it was a real bad design problem. And I'm sure on that design team, there were super achievers who worked 80 hours a week and were amazing team members. But it didn't matter if the team failed because all that matters is the team has to succeed. Same thing <coughs> on a football team. And I take mm-hmm. a lot of inspiration from Bo Schembechler, our famous coach, who painted the words on the tunnel, the team, the team, the team, that I even heard you say. That's right. <laughs> and it's really about the team if you're going to be a team. You've got to do whatever it takes to make the team successful. And you might be the most amazing football player in the world. And if your team loses, you lose too. That's just the way of life. So I don't give any extra credit for being a great team member. They get credit because of the score the team gets. And, uh, but people who aren't stepping up and aren't helping the team do deserve to lose points. On the other hand, I don't ever take more than 20% of the grade away from them. But that's enough to really make that um, that part of the grade not count. So they do have to be good team members. And we talk a lot about what it means to be a good team member and to help the team. So that's a critical part of my entire course. And I really, I can release the comments to the students anonymously. They don't know who wrote it, but I think it's really good they get that feedback. Yeah, that written feedback is such a critical aspect. And within my peer reviews, that's something that um, the students can write to me, the instructor, and provide this qualitative written feedback on what their experiences are. And then I can decide you know, what to do with it, whether to tell people or not. Um, but also just a really interesting point you made about the performance of the team is what matters. And... Um, you know, that could be a good way for reminding some of these overachieving kind of superstar students, but really the students who might be the dominating ones that, you know, the most thing, the most helpful thing you can do for your team probably is not to do more, but to do less so that other people can bring their strengths to the team and help the entire team succeed more effectively. So I think that's a great takeaway. That's right. And that that matches what I learned when I was in industry. You know, because what mattered, you know, if you were writing a proposal together to get a big government contract, you just had to get the contract. That's what mattered because that was going to pay all of our salaries. And if we didn't get it, some people were going to get laid off and it wasn't good for anybody. So it's, look at Boeing. What a mess, right? You know, Boeing with their, you know, those door plugs flying out. Somebody screwed up. Somebody wasn't a good team member, and they need to uncover it and figure it out. But because of that, that company, you know, Boeing's really in trouble, and it's not helpful to anyone at Boeing or the United States because their competition is not a U.S. company. It's Airbus. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a lot about the implementation details, but I think we never actually asked the biggest question of all, which is, 
should people do this in the sense of should your class be team-based? We just jumped right in and said, let's do it. So what's your take on that? Should everyone follow your method of tossing out the lecture with the bathwater and making everything in-class team activities? So, of course not. Um, I'm an extremist. (laughs) I love doing experiments. I'm an experimentalist. I love trying these things. But it's not for everybody. And um, it does take a lot of time to completely convert a class. But I do believe that even if you're going to give a lecture in a big lecture hall and use the, you know, sage on the stage approach, there are things you can do to make your class, you know, immeasurably better. Like, why not just put in four slides in your slide deck placed at strategic places where you stop lecturing and ask the students to turn to their neighbor and discuss a problem, a question. Let them talk. Give them space. You'll find the room will erupt with discussion. And you don't have, even if you do it just once in a lecture, it's great. And it's nice to have a team of two. Because if you have a team of two, no one can be an introvert. Well, I guess they could, but it's pretty obvious to the other person. And you need to tell them they each need to speak half the time. That's right. So you need to, to you know, prompt them into good behavior. But by just doing that, that little step, I think, is one way to add some of the real benefits of uh, team-based learning to an actual lecture. Now, of course, another approach, I know a lot of Europeans do this, they lecture for half the class and then break the class up into teams and have them work on problems that related to what was just discussed. That's another opportunity. Um, As we have more and more flexible classrooms in our environments, it's actually not that difficult to have students rearrange the furniture and move into teams. Um, Obviously, going back and forth and back and forth is kind of difficult. But if you did this idea of lecturing for half the class and using the other half of the class for team-based activities, that could work as well. Or even have them sit in teams and you can go ahead and lecture to them. Having the TV sets is wonderful because how many times have you sat in a lecture and you can't read anything on the screen because the idiot professor forgot that people can't read, you know, 12 point font when they're sitting all the way across the room. And so, but the truth is you can read 12 point font when you have a 55 inch TV, you know, four feet from your face. Um, But again, don't overdo it. You should never make busy crowded. Yeah. There's a whole other issue issue there. But the, the, point is that you can provide data to students, even tabular data, if you give them an activity and they want to use it. You can bring in simulation tools because the students can run what's on the screen. So, you know, in our field, you can bring in the grants of software and have them do material selection by using the software. So incorporating these kinds of activities with your lecture is putting active learning into your lecture. And I'm sure you've heard it before, there are over 500 studies that have proved definitively that active learning is better than passive learning. And even if you just bring a little bit in and do a hybrid, it works really well. So you can take your the same lecture you've given for the last 30 years in your stand and deliver lecture and still use it. 
Just take a break, cut a little bit of material out, take a break, and put that material back in in terms of a problem you have the student solve in class that relates to what you're doing. It'll benefit everybody, and it'll give you a break from your lecturing. Yep. You can have a, have a drink. It's worth reemphasizing that just that little change from zero to not zero makes such a huge difference in the feeling of the class. It's really wonderful. It's funny you brought up the material selection because that's exactly what I'm doing with my freshman course next week is I'll lecture about material selection for 15 minutes or so and then say, all right, go do it. And they'll be in their teams in the lecture hall working on material selection problem, making Ashby charts, comparing properties to each other and, you know, doing all that business. But I guess that's a topic for another day. There's one more thing I want to bring up. Sure. And that is something I think um, I know you've experienced and, and I certainly have. When you go to the front of the room and you lecture for 50 minutes and you walk out, you never had a conversation with a single student. And... When you start doing team-based teaching and you walk around and look at what the students are doing, you might sit down at the, at the table with them and talk to them, and you realize instead of lecturing, you're having all these conversations with students. You get to just go hang out with them and talk to them. It's so much fun for me as a teacher. So it's a very rewarding experience from a personal point of view. And I don't think people really talk about that, but I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just turning them from faces and seats into three-dimensional people is such a game changer and it's rewarding. And it is exactly as you said, it's just fun to socialize and to talk about science and maybe about non-science too, and just make it a complete whole experience for everyone. And it's made me realize that although I thought that I could take an 800-person lecture, put them into a giant cafeteria, and make these intimate six-people classes, I'm not sure it really scales. I've come to the conclusion that it's really critical that the faculty member connect with all the teams. And I think you're limited to about 10 or 12 teams is the maximum you can do. And so, uh, sadly... I don't think this is going to scale. But on the other hand, I think universities just have to bite the bullet and stop teaching these massive classes just because they make a lot of money doing it. But that's my personal opinion. Well, I think we've had what we have. We've said what we have to say about teams for today. I suppose it's time to wrap it up. But good news, we'll be back next week with another episode of Undercooled. So until then... We'll see you next time. See you later.